All right, we're going to be talking tonight, or begin talking tonight, about uh, my um, mother's father, the second Bob of Above, Lebensian. And actually, Arbensian uh, is named after him. Well, I, my other, my father's father, whose name was Yehuda Leib, they added the name when he was ill. They added the name Bensian. So his name, his full name, for about the last 15 or 20 years of his life was Bensian Yehuda Leib. So. What? Because Bensian is a uh, school of Rarichus Yomim. Yeah, that's even why they named him. My, wait, I don't more, more than five? Yeah, well, I don't know. More. It's hard to know whether what's more, but it's a school. Um, the second Bavarov Rabbin was born in the month of Iyar in the year 5634 which comes out to be 1874 and he was born if you remember uh, in when we discussed um, his father, the first of Avvalov, that he, his first uh, rabbinical position was in the city of Bukovsk. And um, my grandfather was born in uh, the city of Bukovsk in 1874. And uh, the, the, his his um, great-grandfather, the Divrei Chaim, the was still alive. And the Sanzarov um, instructed his grandson, to name this child Bensian, and there were two reasons. One is is that the name Bensian is a segula. It is uh, considered a um, uh, one of those uh, uh, unexplainable celestial mysteries. That um, that the name Bensian is uh, something that works to the good fortune of the bearer of that name, so that they um, their chance at uh, at living a longer life is enhanced. And this was especially important because um, the Reb uh, Shlomo and his Rebbetzin had. Uh, suffered the loss of uh, some earlier pregnancies or some earlier births, and so when uh, when this child was born, the uh, the grandfather gave a name which would redound to the benefit of the child's um, living a, uh, a long life. Uh, he also. Uh, in a letter of, of bracha to his grandson upon the birth of this great-grandchild, um, indicated that uh, one of the reasons that he was partial to the name of Ben Sion is because he prayed that in the in the days of this child that Claudius Yisrael would merit finding its redemption and its return to, to Zion. So, um, and if you'll remember, the, um, in the course of uh, describing the life of the first Bavavavav, I, I 
noted the uh, that uh, the fire that consumed everything, all, all, his, all of his belongings and his precious uh, heirloom uh, items that he had from from all of his forebears and his um, and, and the uh, many of the manuscripts. Um, in that fire was this letter of bracha that he had received from the Divrei Chaim upon the birth of, of his son, the Ben Sin. And um, it was the only letter that survived the, the blaze. And even this letter was entirely burnt around and around, but the body of the letter, the letter was intact. It was the, um, the only thing that... Uh, that made it through this this uh, this terrible fire. Um, the uh, great grandfather, uh, the Divrechaim, the son Zerov, had occasion to hold this baby upon his lap, it is Rebbenzin, and um, and holding him on his lap, he. Um, he put his hand on his uh, on his cheek, and he said, "This youngster will grow up to be a chacham mechukim. He's going to grow up to be a, a person of of sage wisdom, a uh, prophecy which uh, which was realized in the uh, in the life of uh, of this Rebbe Um He married." His um, first cousin, once removed, my um, grandmother was um, the 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 daughter of Rabinzian's great uncle, uh, the um, Rebbe of Reitzfeld, Rabshon uh, Lazarov's daughter, whose name was Chaya Frado. So. Uh, my grandmother Chayfrado, um and uh, my grandfather were blessed with. Um, she had her first child. I think she was something like sixteen years old. My mom, my mother was born when she was uh, about sixteen or so, and um, and then she didn't have children for a number of years. She may have, wait a minute. She had Rivchila, my, my 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 aunt, and then there was a period of a number of years. So at age 21, she had two children, and she went to a doctor to find out what she could do about bearing more children. The doctor nearly threw her out of the office. Um, but she uh, she and my grandfather were blessed with 11 children, four four boys and seven daughters. Um, out of which. All the daughters survived the Holocaust, and uh, two of the two of the sons. So two two uh, two sons perished, and um, along with him, and some of his uh, sons-in-laws. And uh, we'll talk about that. It probably not today. Uh, as a youngster, he was already. Uh, discerned as a as a very gifted youngster, um, and uh, on one occasion, one of the um, the very prominent Bava Vachsidim 
returned from um, whose, whose name was Rebetzal Dain, he ended up in, 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 in Jerusalem. Um, Rebetzal Dain came to um, to, to um, visit the Rebbe, and uh, mm-hmm. my grandfather, Rebetzian at the time, was, a, was still a, a young lad, and uh, he noticed that um, he didn't daven along with the rest of the tzibur. He noticed that the uh, Rebetzian would come in and would sort of um, wait out the davening so he could answer Kedusha and Baruchu and Yehesh Meirabo and, uh, and all of the necessary things that you, you can't do without a tzibur. And then he would go into a, a room and seclude himself and he would daven there for hours and hours well after uh, the noon hour, all the while, of course, he hadn't eaten, and he was a, he was a delicate youngster. So after noticing this for a number of days, Rebetzal Dayan went into my great-grandfather, to Shlemla, and said to him, I, I imagine the Rebbe must be aware of this, but I, I'm sort of astounded. Uh, your son goes in to, to the um, davening, doesn't daven along with everybody else, mm-hmm. just answers, and then after he finishes, the, when, when they finish the davening, he goes in and he davens for hours by himself. And if nothing else, uh, he's, um, he's fasting until well after the noon hour, and he's, it's, it's got to be a damaging to his health. So I'm, I'm, I'm really astounded that the Rebbe doesn't put a stop to this. Well, it happened that um, he told him this somewhere in the, uh, in the during the morning hours. So Rabbi Shleimah got up and said to Rabbi Tzaldain, he said, come, let's go and look for him. So they went to this room where he was secluded, and they stood near the door, and they listened in to his davening. And um, the his davening was um, he was he was uh, first of all he was blessed with a with a, a, a genius in uh, in uh, his uh, his uh, the, the sweetness of his of his davening the sweetness of his music he, he ended up he was a composer of hundreds of melodies which which continue to be sung today throughout the world. But even at that very early age, uh, his uh, his davening was uh, was so heartfelt that uh, as they stood there, they just stood the two of them stood there transfixed. And after about twenty minutes or so, Reb um, took the hand of Reb Tzal Dain and he said to him. Rebetzal, he says, any Jew, he said, who can daven in such a, with, with such yearning, such longing, and in such a heartfelt way, he said, it's it's really, it would be inappropriate for anyone to try to stop that that kind of a tefillah. And Rebetzal and Dayan could not help but agree that this was a, uh, it was, was not something that he wanted to tamper with. Um, a, kind of an interesting episode, which 
sort of instructive, really, in, in a rather bleak way, but instructive. Um, Shlomo, as you remember, I told you that, he, that the first Bavarov was um, suffered from a variety of ailments, most prominent amongst which was a very weak heart. In any event, they, they, uh, the doctors uh, had advised him that it would be good for him to, to go swimming. Well, near, not, not too far from from um, Bubov, there was a river called the River Biala River. And uh, on one occasion, uh, when Rimshlemla went to this river to uh, to bathe, there was a place there where he could he could go in where nobody was around. So as he was about to leave Bubov, he took. My grandfather, Rabbi Sian, and and um, my grandfather's brother-in-law, Rabbi Chaim Yank of Teitelbaum, who was uh, married to uh, Rabbi Sian's sister. So he took his son-in-law and his son along with him to the to the river. Just as they were about to leave, Rabbi Leibish Dayan arrived. So Leibish Dayan arrived and um, gave. Uh, with uh, a request that he give a bracha for uh, somebody who was sick. Rabbi um, replied that he had already taken care of this this particular sick person, and he said to Rabbi he said, "You know what? Drive along with us to um, come along with us to the to the river." So they made their way to the river. Rabbi, Shlaimullah went into the river and he couldn't be there for but for a very short time and he, and he came out. And after he came out, my grandfather Rabin Sian and his and his brother in law, Ruhan Yankiv, went into the river to swim. Now the fact is is that they didn't know how to swim. And this was a very strong river. Reblebish did not want Reblebish Dain, who had gone along, had no interest in going swimming. So he took his, uh, he took the, the he took the wagon, and and went upstream. He just along the the the, the um, edge of the river. He just went upstream. The um, the. Apparently the river was very, very strong that day, and the, the two young men were immediately swept away, and uh, they managed to scream for help before they went under. And Shlemla looked out, saw the two of them fighting against the current and going under, and he screamed for the Blavish. Now, this Blavish dying was a, was a powerful swimmer. He screamed for the Blavish. And the Blavish, who was, you know, he was going in those days at the... the Noise of the the of the, uh, the wagon was enough to drown it, and he didn't hear. Did not hear the Rebbe calling for him. So when the Rebbe saw that Reb Levish didn't hear him, he just lifted up his hands to the heavens. He said, help me!" And then he exclaimed. He said, "Zayda," like he was like he was talking to to the Dilechaim, who of course was long. And the Elam Ma'amas, who was long gone, he said to him, Zayda, you must intervene on behalf of, of your grandchildren. They're, they're going to drown. At that point, from a distance, 
Rebbe turned around and looked back and he saw the Rebbe with his hands up. When he saw the Rebbe with his hands up and he saw that something was, was wrong, so he stopped the wagon and he was able to hear that he was screaming for help. So he jumped out the wagon and jumped into the river upstream and because he was upstream rather than up there, he was able immediately to grab the Chaim Yankel, the uh, son-in-law, and drag him to shore. He had already swallowed a lot of water, and the Leibish was exhausted from fighting him to bring him in. And, he, and what's more, his clothes were, were sopping, and he couldn't, couldn't swim anymore. So he pleaded with my grandfather to pull off his clothes. And they, were, they managed to pull off almost everything. They couldn't pull up one boot, they couldn't pull up, it was, it was like stuck. So he jumped back in with his one, one boot and went looking for Rebinsian. And he managed to, uh, to find him, again because he was sufficiently upstream so that he was able to catch him, and um, dragged him onto, onto the shore, where it appeared that they were too late. And they began this, whatever they knew about, about resuscitation, and pushing him, and finally he began to to um, throw up uh, water and whatnot. And, um, and uh, gradually came back to life. Years and years later, my grandfather was in Reitzfeld by his in-laws. Now, his mother-in-law, just to confuse you, his mother-in-law, was a sister of my grandfather, of my father's father. Just, they were, whatever. You got it. Anyway, then it was, um, it was in this case, an uncle had married a niece. Anyway, so um, my um, my great grandmother, the Reitzfeder Rebetzin, had grown up in Hanestaipel. She was a daughter of the Hanestaipel, the mother of Hanestaipel. And Hanestaipel had conducted itself according to the, all of the, the amenities of Chernobyl, because that was his, his chinuch. So, during this visit, he told his mother-in-law about what had occurred years earlier when he had come this close to death in this incident where he had uh, gone under in the in the stream. So my great-grandmother remarked to him, to her son-in-law, she said to him, you know, she said, in Chernobyl, there was a, um, a, a warning that, um, that even people who, who weren't chassidim, but because they regarded the ways of Chernobyl, on the sixth day of Tammuz, nobody went swimming. There was a Kabbalah that that's a very dangerous day to go swimming, at which point my grandfather said that was the day. It was on, on the sixth day of Tammuz that he had gone, that he had gone swimming. And, um, and ever since that day, uh, on the sixth day of Thomas, my grandfather would make a, a suda. He would, he would, there was a suda, so he, he would uh, convene some chassidim to, to thank the Almighty for this, uh, this wondrous uh, event that he had survived the, uh, 
uh, in this brush with death. Um, throughout the years that his father, the Shlemelah, was was building his yeshiva, uh, Rebbein Tzion's son was uh, was his uh, trusted lieutenant. Such that uh, at a given point, uh, there were a good many of the responsibilities of, of uh, administrating the, the yeshiva that uh, that Rebbein Tzion was forced to assume responsibility to try to protect his father's health. In Anrash Chaydesh Tammuz in Tasa uh, Meche in 1905, Rosh passed away. And uh, despite the fact that he was still very young, he was 31 years old, his uh, uncles who were there immediately conferred upon him the mantle of leadership and he assumed the position of being the second Baba Varov. And um, he devoted himself to the uh, to to um, rebuilding the uh, the yeshiva so that it would once again become a bastion of um, of um, learning in the uh, in Galicia. And then uh, the uh, First World War broke out. First World War broke out. They were forced to flee. And uh, by the time they returned at the conclusion of the war, 1917, many things had happened. First of all, the uh, pretty much everything had been destroyed in Bob of itself. Second of all, the uh, the time was rife with all kinds of of new redemptive movements. Communism was was uh, promising to redeem the world from poverty and all of its, and the the um, inequities of, of capitalism, um, the um, uh, the intellectual world was was overflowing with uh, very powerful movements, and uh, the Haskalah and the Reformation were uh, were exacting a big toll on the youth of that time, and. Um, Uh, Rebensian understood that the summons of the hour was to not merely to address the young people of his time in a limited way, but that he had to uh, make a very uh, energetic and determined effort to reclaim the um, the young people. So uh, he began. Uh, what in its time was an unprecedented um, uh, crusade, a campaign to to recapture the youth. Uh, he himself was um, an extremely discerning, very um, uh, um, very wise, um, brilliant man. He. Um, that uh, was a a, uh, a very um, powerful speaker, a very compelling speaker, and and he had a way of of uh, discerning what young people needed to hear, and so wherever he went, 
his uh, his first concern was trying to restore young people to uh, to their heritage. Um, the young people uh, would come to him with their questions, and he knew where they were coming from, and he knew what the questions were really all about, and he was able uh, consistently to disarm them and to uh, to quicken their curiosity about uh, about their background. And so he really became kind of a um, a, a Kiruv worker of sorts in his time, because there were there were many young people who uh, he brought back to uh, to Yiddishkeit. The, um, the Belzerov the Belzerov the first not the first Belzerov the Belzerov of Sechadayv um, once exclaimed I am envious of Rebenzin of Babav um, who has the wherewithal to purify the souls of all of these of these hundreds and thousands of young Jews. His son, the previous Belzerov Rabarala, once exclaimed in Yiddish, he said, Vos erot kikont in chinuch, kikont. He once said what he was able to do in reaching young people, no one else was able to do. He was masterful in the, in that role. And uh, and there are, there are really are, are um, countless stories about about how he uh, reached out to um, um, to get these uh, these young people back into the into the fold. Um, there was a, um, a well-known story of a young man from Chernovitz by the name of, of Mordechai Schwartz. So Mordechai Schwartz was 20 years old when he arrived in Babeth. He did not know an Aleph from a scorecard. I mean, he, there was he, he was illiterate, um, a, a bright young man and uh, and a thirst for wanting to learn um, he um, came to Bobov and um, was interviewed by the, the administrator of the yeshiva who quickly found that uh, you know I mean what are you going to do with a 20 year old who doesn't know all of face and this is a Hasidic center so he advised this uh, Mordechai Schwartz, that there was no room for him, and there was, they didn't have facilities to teach him, and that he should go back home. But this uh, Mordechai Schwartz was uh, was not about to, to give up his uh, desire to learn. So he said that uh, he told the administrators of the yeshiva that even if they weren't going to teach him, that he was going to stay there because he was going to find a way. So they took him in to see my grandfather, to Rabinsian, who listened to his plight. And uh, when he finished, he uh, uh, the Rebbe summoned the uh, heads of the yeshiva, and he said to them, 
Um, I want you to um, see to it that the following people will come in to see me. And amongst them were a whole list of Bacharim who were Mitsuyanim. They were excellent students. And he says, I want them to come in. And he gave each one of them an assignment. And everyone donated part of their day, a half hour of their day, to, to learn with this Mordechai Schwartz. And they did so consecutively. So he had a whole day of learning, which was mapped out for him. This this went on. This remark of Schwartz was uh, was capable. And uh, in a uh, relatively short period of time, he was um, capable of joining a class. And uh, it really kind of burned the place up and, and um, eventually became an excellent uh, student. He became a Talmud Chacham. Uh, after he married, he um, moved to Babith and became a Batimacher. He made uh, the, um, you know, the, the housing for the film. The, um. So um, this, uh, there's a, I'll share with you some uh, an interesting incident in the life of this uh, of this uh, Mordechai Schwartz uh, next time. Um, But this uh, this kind of concern and the uh, the dedication to uh, to mobilize a yeshiva to address the needs of a, of a single individual was not uncommon in in Babith. Um His preoccupation with young people. Um, drew some critical remarks from certain circles of Chassidim who felt that um, that he was out to create a large Chassidus by kind of um, enlisting, by registering um, these young Talmidim. And they saw something of a departure in the sense that um, that Hasidus was um, a kind of thing that uh, well-established Balabatim, who already had homes and families, this was their thing. But the young Bukharim were were kind of not the object of the Rabbeim up until that time. To which my grandfather responded with a parable. He said that um, there was a general who had fought in many battles, and uh, had distinguished himself as one of the, the um, great military figures of his time. And as an elderly man, when he was already retired, um, the um, government asked him to review the, uh, the, as it were, review the army. So he began to, uh, to journey about visiting the different... Uh, army bases, and, and he saw that they were training some of the soldiers to put on masks and to, to dig ditches and jump into the ditches and, and you know, like, cover their heads and stuff, and he, he said to them, you know, he said, you're training your soldiers all wrong. He said, you have to teach them how to, how to use a sword, you have to teach them how to shoot straight, and he said, what do you... So they said to him, General, your tactics would have been sufficient for a battle which 
We were fighting 50 years ago, but today, he says, there are airplanes, and today there are bombs, and there are all kinds of, of uh, poisonous gases that they are able to explode. He said, unless we teach the soldiers how to protect themselves against the, the poison that, that they're capable of, of putting into the air, we're going to lose the soldiers before they have a chance to shoot. So my grandfather said, look, he said, once upon a time, he said, everything that... that we were doing was made a lot of sense he says but today he says the environment is polluted with many poisonous gases he says if we wait to make chassidim out of uh, individuals when they've already reached their uh, the, the point in, the, in their lives where they're they're building families he says we will be much too late because all of these noxious influences will have claimed their souls long before. He said, today, he says, you cannot fight battles the way you did in those days, and we must enlist these young people and bring them into the yeshivas at the earliest age so that they can begin to um, to develop the, the immunities that they'll need. Uh, certainly one of the means by which he reached the souls of these young people was not only with uh, with his divrei teira and his divrei chizuk, his uh, his exhortations uh, that that were, were very timely and and um, um, were able to fortify these young people against the different influences of the time that would have or could have distracted them from their learning and taken them to to other uh, to other pastures. But being a very gifted composer, his uh, he was he was also able to provide a, um, a um, an outlet, an expression for these young people that uh, that infused them with uh, with a, a certain spirituality, which came out of his uh, his musical compositions. Uh, even as a youngster, when he was uh, as a bar mitzvah boy. His father, Mishlemla, took him to Kaminka, to his to his grandfather, his maternal grandfather, to put on film. So uh, they passed through Belz, and they went into the Mitla Belz of the Bishila Belza. This is a youngster, uh, 13 years old. It was in the middle of the week, and the Belz of told this rabbit to... to uh, that they had some very hush of guests, and that he, he would appreciate if she could make a very special sauda for the, the guest. And he asked that she make a kugel. And when she said, what is a kugel doing in the middle of the week? He said, uh, the Baba the Rov is a, a, a great tzaddik, and uh, the Zohar says that a great tzaddik is Mithachinus Shabbos. They, they're considered just as the Shabbos is a very special day amongst the common days of the week. So a great tzaddik stands out as a, as a, a Shabbos amongst men. So when Shabbos comes to the community, even if it's in the middle of the week, you got to make a kugel. So they sat at the meal, and during the course of the meal, Abshila Belza got up, walked out, and said to his rebbeton, I want you to listen very carefully by the door. I'm going to ask this little boy to sing. So... He asked the Ben Sin to uh, to sing Shira Malis, the uh, conclusion of the meal. 
it turned out later on that uh, that this was uh, one of his first musical compositions, but that it was a, a song which had apparently left its mark um, in the um, in the court of, of Belt. In any event, um, the um, these these nigunim and and nigina in general in in Babif has uh, certainly occupies a, a, a place of uh, a particular prominence because it does happen to be um, a very soulful way of of, uh, of um, celebrating the, the special occasions, whether it's Shabbos or Yontif or what have you, and um, uh, the um, the Ben the second Bob of the Rov, was uh, was able to compose these nigunim. As the hour called for them, and so um, this too became one of the weapons in his armamentarium to uh, reclaim the young people of his time. Um, he had a, um, a a passion for truth, which he imparted to his uh, Talmudim and his Hasidim. He um, could not bear um, people who uh, postured, people who uh, were arrogant, people who were haughty. Um, uh, many, many of his drushes uh, warned against the evils of uh, of arrogance and uh, and how important it was to be able to see oneself in the. Uh, in the proper perspective. Um, he um, demanded of, of his Hasidim that uh, their uh, major emphasis and their major interest be exclusively in learning. And the um, yeshivas of, uh, of Babav were known not only for the fact that uh, they, the the lion's share of everything that took place there was in, in, in uh, learning in Shulchanoch and Gemara, but that um, but that the Rebbe was not very fond of pilpul. Uh, the uh, these elaborate um, Talmudic dissertations, which um, which however exciting they would be, but they took people away from addressing the the, the nuts and bolts of mastering the 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 Talmud. So he, he was um, someone who, who insisted that the um, that the learning take place on a, uh, on, a, on a very in a very disciplined and a very uh, rigorous um, and uh, and very analytic way. Under his uh, aegis, the um, yeshivas of Babav began to open up in other communities towns, cities, villages throughout West Galicia. Before the war, there were almost 60 yeshivas Eitz Chaim in the communities of Galicia with close to a thousand Talmudim. Um, it was pretty much unparalleled in its scope, in its time, and he was personally conversant with what was going on in his yeshivas, he paid top dollar, literally dollar. He did not pay in, in the Polish coin. He paid 
his his uh, his staff in dollars, um, and uh, and of course, in something that was to be a uh, a foretaste of what was yet to come in generations beyond his time, he managed to accumulate great institutional debt. Some things um, are genetic and hereditary. Um, in um, in nineteen thirty two when he reached the uh, let's see if that figures out does that calculate out um, 1974 would be 26 26 and 32 right at the age of 58 he abruptly announced to his uh, family and Chassidim uh, that he was moving and he picked himself up without explanation. This, you have to realize his father passed away at age 58. When he reached the age of 58, he just abruptly announced that he was moving, and he moved to Chabin. Now, in Chabin, there was the world-renowned posik, the Chabin Arog. And um, uh, perhaps next time I will tell you a little bit about his relationship with the Chabin Arog. And you have to realize he moved into a community where there was a world-renowned halachic um, luminary, um, really someone who was a, a, uh, an internationally recognized halachic authority. Uh, but the um, the uh, my grandfather was a uh, really a masterful diplomat. Uh, created a relationship with him of of such reciprocity and mutual respect that it was uh, it really became a um, kind of a uh, paragon for uh, for others to um, to emulate he was there for five years and uh, then just as abruptly decided to move back to Bobov and uh, moved back to Bobov in 1937 a number of years before the second world war broke out um, the um, uh, Rebenzian, the um, second Bob of Rov, despite his uh, enormous responsibilities, managed to make time to meet with virtually each one of his Hasidim and his Talmidim. He would schedule them for um, uh, personal appointments. Invariably, after spending whatever amount of time with them, these uh, these Talmidim would, Hasidim would emerge, their uh, 
faces streaked with tears. Uh, he had managed to uh, to help them uh, come to grips with uh, the, some of the problems that were uh, the their sole problems, their their problems that they had, which which were involved with their personal integrity, and uh, uh, they were. Uh, he was in a paternal figure. Uh, he had a, an, um, a, a tremendous um, uh, ability to um, to win the trust and the confidence of these of, of his chassidim, so that they in fact looked at him uh, as a loving parent, and he really did serve to many of them in precisely that that function, that role. Um, uh, he uh, assumed personal responsibility for those pe- those uh, young people whose parents would no longer have anything to do with them because they were too religious. He took personal responsibility for those young people who had come to his yeshivas who were orphans. Um, he married them off. He uh, provided for them. He uh, constantly monitored their well-being. He was a... Uh, he was really not only a teacher and a rebbe, but he was a, um, a parent. And, and the Hasidim remembered him and related to him with um, a very special kind of an affection. Um, one of his... Uh, I'd like to tell you a number of uh, incidents before we close here tonight. Um, and, and there were, by the way... Um, uh, numerous incidents which uh, which made him or which which demonstrated that he was very much part of the fabric of this long line of of people who had connections in in uh, higher uh, spheres than the ones that we are generally uh, conversant with. But many of his myths and many of the the wondrous events were really events that were a product of of uh, of his wisdom, of the fact that he was a very sage person. For example, um, there was a uh, a fellow Chassid. These were this was during the period of time when when uh, my grandfather was in Chibin. So there was a a, a city called uh, Shishovitz. So there was a fellow who came from Kshishovitz who poured his heart out to the Rebbe, came to the Rebbe, and, and here was the thing. Um, there was the the fellow who was appointed to um, collect taxes in the city was a, um, a rabid anti-Semite. Um, and uh, was constantly looking to cause trouble for the Jews. And he came in. He, this uh, this Jew, had had some some uh, had come on hard times and was not able to really pay his taxes. So he came in with a um, um, member of the uh, police to um, take inventory of all of this Jewish man's um, 
belongings so that they could confiscate it for um, for the money that was owed in taxes. So the Jew protested that this was premature, that the time for a, ta- for a tax collection was not up yet, and that he had no right to enter his home without, uh, without special legal permission, and he certainly did not have any right to take this inventory. Nonetheless, he ignored him, and he continued to take this inventory, and then he pointed that in, in, the, in one corner there was something that was covered up. He said, take the cover off that, whatever it is over there. It turned it was, it had, it had been, been a sewing machine. So, the, against his will, the Jew went over and removed the cover from the sewing machine, and it fell out of his hand. Now, it happened to have been a cover which had on it the emblem of the kingdom, a white, a white uh, eagle. It slipped out of his hands, and in his desperation to try to pick it up, he ended up stepping on it. The policeman, who was also was a, a rabid anti-Semite, began to scream, "You've trampled on the the, uh, the honor of the kingdom!" And uh, anyway, the, he said to me, "You saw it just fell out of my hands. What do you?" Anyway, couldn't help it. They went out immediately and they swore an indictment out against him for his um, deprecation of the um, the emblem of the kingdom. So the trial was set for, um, there was already, an, there had been a, a, um, a one trial, which he had lost, um, and the, uh, the judge had given him a very stern lecture in which he said to him, would if uh, if it had been a Torah scroll, would you step on your Torah scroll? How dare you step on the emblem of the king? Anyway, so he knew that he was not in a good place, and uh, the um, sentence for this was three years of imprisonment. So he came to Babov, and he poured his heart out. So uh, my grandfather gave him his blessing, and the man left. He comforted him, he strengthened him, man left. And a few minutes after he left, the Rebbe sent the guy by to bring him back. Came back, he said to him, look, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take into the trial, when you go into trial, take with you a box of matches. He said, most of the boxes of matches, as they were in those days, had the emblem of the kingdom, the insignia, on the on the box. So he said, see to it that there will be only one match in the box. He said, and when you're at the trial, he says, invariably, one of the judges will decide to smoke. So he said, the minute that you see one of the judges pulling out a cigarette, run over with this box and hand them the box with the match. He says what he will do is he'll use the match, see that the box is empty, and throw it in the garbage. He says, and then you'll be able to protest how you're allowed to, to throw the, the insignia, the emblem of the kingdom, into the garbage. So, Schosset faithfully followed the instructions, took with him this one box, I mean the box with the, with the one match in it, went into the trial, and they were going through the trial, and then all of a sudden he saw the chief justice 
pulls out a cigarette. As he pulled out a cigarette, he stepped forward and handed him the box with the struck the match, lit up the cigarette, saw the box and took it and threw it into the garbage. At which point the lawyer, the lawyer of the Jews stepped forward and said, Your Honor, he said, on that max matchbox which just went into the garbage was the emblem, the, the white eagle of, of the kingdom. He said, if the Chief Justice can cast the emblem of the kingdom into the garbage, then certainly this man who's been a faithful citizen for all his years and has been a, a fervent patriot and did not mean to step on the on the emblem should be forgiven this one. The case was thrown out of court. All the other judges who were there laughed and applauded. They realized that the stratagem was uh, was a work of genius. So it, he was uh, he was acquitted, but it was it was one of those things that um, that immediately uh, was one of those stories that that made its way um, into the uh, kind of the legends of the time. Um, there was a uh, Reb Mendel Bodner um, who uh, once came to the to the uh, to Rebbenzin with a, um, a problem that his daughter he had his daughter with him his daughter had uh, gone into a spasm of hiccuping and it wasn't just simple hiccups these weren't by the time these things these were really kind of awesome. Um, explosions, and he had gone to her with, taken her to a number of uh, doctors, and they uh, they were unable to, to do anything to him. So, um, at a loss of how to 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 end this this siege, he decided that before he was going to take her to to uh, Krakow or whatever to see the, the all of the specialist that he would go in with her to the, to the boat. So the Gabe came in and said to the to, uh, to the Rebbe, he said to him, the Mendelbadner is here, and his daughter has been, it's a number of days now that she's been, he has this awesome thing, which you could hear all the way from the next room, and they can't stop the hiccuping. And he's here for, for the Rebbe's bracha. So the Rebbe thought for a few seconds, and without saying anything, he went over to the closet and took out a cane. And he ran out with this cane and ran up to this, this girl and lifted the cane as, as though to strike her. And she immediately went into the state of absolute terror, at which point the hiccup stopped. Um, so when they when they uh, said to him, that was, uh, you know, Another another wondrous event. He said, "No, not at all." He says, "This is a it's a nervous spasm." He says, "If you can counteract it with something that uh, that's a, a very strong kind of a, a nervous shock, frequently he says that will be sufficient to." He says, "I, I took a chance." He says, I, "I figured that if she'd see me running at her with a stick, that it would infuse her with enough terror to stop the hiccuping." I remember when I was when when I was a youngster, I was I was up in the attic and going through boxes of old things, and there was an old newspaper clipping from um, 1929. And this was, again, one of the, the, the stories that had made its way around. It was a, a brilliant uh, 
brilliant story. There was um, a, a city, Kamnaika. Kamanka. This Kamanka was a, 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 a village near Kshanov, one of the, the Galicia, the larger Galician communities. And in the summer of 1929, a farmer um, by the name of uh, Roman Belevsky was found murdered. And they didn't have a clue as to who it was. The um, the non-Jewish peasants there um, accused a um, Jewish man by the name of Beller. This Beller, Beller, was uh, had a, a, a kind of an inn there uh, where they, they served meals and, and drinks and what's not. And, and uh, apparently, this this farmer, this Roman Bolevsky owed him some money. So they accused the Jew of murdering him in a fight to get his money back, what he owed him. The, um, the moment that he was, and of course this immediately stirred up the passions of everybody in the, in, in the surrounding areas who only needed an excuse to start something of a pogrom. The moment that uh, Beller was um, was imprisoned. His son ran to Babath to uh, ask the Rebbe what uh, what to do. So the Rebbe said to him, he said quickly, he says, go back before they bury the the um, this uh, Bolevsky fellow and do everything you possibly can to um, see to it that they will allow you to conduct a, an experiment through which you will determine who the real murderer is. So he told them exactly what to do. The guy ran back, um, appealed to everybody who had influence in, in, in uh, the highest circles of government that they should issue an order that this experiment be allowed. And when... Um, uh, the uh, the powers that be were advised that this was that this advice this counsel had come from the Rebbe of Babav. His reputation at the time was uh, was one of that was widely revered. The instructions were given to the local um, police that they should indulge this experiment. What was the experiment? During the visit of the son to Babav. My grandfather asked him if he had any idea who really might have killed him. And he said that this this, this farmer, Bolevsky, had three bitter enemies amongst the non-Jewish peasants of the area. And any one of them hated him enough to have murdered him. So he said, go back and arrange for these three people plus... Beller, plus your father, to be in the room with the body of the the, the victim of this this, uh, this murdered victim, and advise them that a special prayer has been recited, which will help determine the identity of the murderer. 
And what they're to do is, is that each one is to march up to the dead person. They're to take his hand and shake it. When they come to the real murderer, the dead person will not let go of his hand. So they come into the room, and the, um, the chief of police lines them up, and there's the guy, who the, 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 the hug is lying there, and he says, special prayer has been recited by the great rabbi above and now each one of you is to march up and um, take his hand. The um, the real murderer will not be able to release his hand because the the, the victim will hold on to his hand and will not release his grip on it. First one to march up was Beller. Beller took his hand, shook it vigorously, walked away. Next guy walked up. Um, same night, then was there was one of these these games. His name was Yosef uh, Polnik. This Yosef Polnik walked up, stopped, and became hysterical. Um, and he began to scream, "He will take vengeance on me!" And he refused to shake his hands, and he confessed to the crime. Um, so I remember reading this this story in a, in a, in, a, in this this yellowed newspaper, which had captured this at the time because it was one it was one of those famous stories that had crossed the ocean. It was uh, it was one of those things that um, that had made its way throughout the Jewish world, and it was yet another one of the uh, of those uh, the, those stories which. Uh, uh, which amplified the uh, the reputation that the Baba Vilov had as uh, as one of the the wise sages of Israel. Everybody recognized what a what a brilliant strategist he so was. It had nothing at all to do with with uh, the, with miracles. It was the, the knowledge of the of what these peasant folk were all about and their their superstitions and uh, and that if you just dramatize it appropriately that. Uh, that you can get them to betray what where it's really at. So next time we will talk a little bit more about um, uh, about the uh, the uh, We will talk a little bit about um, his experiences during the Second World War and his death. Uh, and I hope to be able to um, also share with you some divrei which, in deference to the fact that uh, we have not. Uh, done any of the divrei of the first Bavadolov, uh, there are uh, numerous commentaries by the second Bavadolov in which half of the of the of the teva is a commentary by his father. So we'll take some of those. So you'll be able to see that, in a certain sense, the the way the two of them uh, approach their uh, learned commentary on teva. And then I'll tell you some more stories.